This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thanks very much, James. Um, and it's uh, wonderful to see you all here um, at what I believe to be the very first um, Thomistic Institute retreat um, in the UK. May it be the first of very many. Um, it's interesting to me uh, that this first Thomistic Institute retreat should take as its theme um, Catholicism and the arts. Uh, don't we associate Thomism and Aquinas with philosophy and theology, the quest for truth, um, or with ethics, the moral life? And yet here we are, as perhaps potentially already peeping or budding Thomas, reflecting first instead on the arts, on aesthetics. Uh, we're being invited to in enter instead um, what has become known as the via pulcritudinis, the way of beauty. Well, personally, I think this is a very wise, the virtue of prudence and prophetic, a gift of the Holy Spirit approach of the organisers. I'd like to thank here, I don't know where he's gone, Rory, uh, for inviting me to speak. Oh, there you are. I, I was just having dinner with Rory and he said, actually, the reason we've He's chosen Catholicism and the Arts is just purely personal because he's interested in architecture. So, um, but I think it is nonetheless a very wise uh, virtue prudence and prophetic gift of the Holy Spirit uh, working through Rory um, to make the first Thomistic Institute retreat on um, Catholicism and the Arts. After all, and tragically, of course, many Catholics and non-Catholics appear to have been put off, sometimes for life, by an apparently narrow presentation of Aquinas as a kind of ossified philosophical, theological or moral catechism, as overly dry and intellectual. Many early 20th century Catholic theologians, furthermore, were apparently force-fed Aquinas as seminarians. Um, and one can think here of Fergus Kerr's book, an Edinburgh uh, connection, other Dominican, on 20th century Catholic theologians. And they reacted strongly against that approach, if not... Um, against Aquinas' teaching per se. A rather dark picture of Aquinas then can still persist in religious and non-religious contexts today. Um, and just last month I was invited to give a talk on Aquinas at a theological college in England. And, and just before giving it, they were all in person, I was online, but the coordinator who was with them, um, having talked to the room with the students, just said to me, oh, we all hate Aquinas. And that was kind of just giving my talk. So rather than proceeding as planned, I just said, you know, look, why? You've got to tell me why. And so we started with that. They sort of said all these different things. Said, well, he's overly intellectual, Aristotelian, philosophical, out of date, opposed to women, too complicated, too long. Um, and, and, and so, um, uh, you know, instead of dealing with my talk, I kind of started by trying to rebut their objections. But, you know, that's quite a difficult starting point. Right? You're giving a lecture on Aquinas. They say, well, all of us here, we've had a chat. We all hate Aquinas. Um, and even, you know, I teach Aquinas now at the Divinity School at St. Andrews. Um, and I find that students, if they've encountered Aquinas at all, have typically only encountered what I call the Aquinas of the second question, um, the philosophical proofs for the existence of God at the beginning of the Summa Theologiae, their teachers easily demonstrating why these are all invalid, and consequently that Aquinas should be cast out with medieval scholasticism as a whole as part of the rubbish heap of history. So what a parlous state of affairs. Um, suddenly gone really quiet. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. 
<laughs> and to the great credit of those students, and some of them are here, where's the yeah, wonderful some of the students here. Um, and, and St Andrew's students are, are, of course, particularly exemplary. I realise I've met some people from Edinburgh and Dundee and other universities. St Andrew's students are particularly exemplary. They intuited that this might not, after all, uh, be the case and sought to investigate further. The problem might have been with their teachers, dare one say it. Um, but it does indicate, I think, why the Aquinas of the Summa Theologiae might not always be the best starting point. Um, and in my own teaching, I tend now to start with Aquinas' beautiful sermons, his on the Apostles' Creed, his liturgical works, and especially his Compendium of Theology. If you don't know that, it's wonderful, which gives a wonderful bird's-eye view of his theology. And then encourage students to follow up points of interest in the Summa Theologiae, like a bird seeing a grub on the ground and diving down to focus in on a particular aspect of theology in detail. And, of course, um, now the Thomistic Institute itself provides the, the fantastic, the wonderful introductory videos to Aquinas' thought, which I just think are the, the perfect way to start if you're wanting to get an acquaintance with, with Aquinas. So, aside from engaging Aquinas' works directly, how else uh, then might we come to delight in Thomism, to delight even in the beauty of Aquinas' thought and the beauty of Thomism, the beauty indeed of the Christian faith? The 20th century theologian most typically associated with the recovery of beauty in Catholicism and I would say Christian theology more broadly is the Swiss Jesuit priest Hans Urs von Balthasar, 1905-1988. Von Balthasar sought to recover the pre-modern theory of the transcendentals and the understanding that everything insofar as it is, insofar as it has being, is good, true, and beautiful, responding thereby to Kant's modern critique that the transcendentals are, in this sense, tautologists. Where Kant's philosophical systematic starts with philosophy and the true, his critique of pure reason, 1781, then moves to ethics and the good, critique of practical reason, 1788, and finally, aesthetics and beauty, his critique of judgment in 1790, Von Balthasar reverses that order, starting his theological systematics with beauty, the glory of the Lord, in seven volumes, then goodness, his theodrama in five volumes, and finally truth, theologic, three volumes. It is Von Balthasar then who boldly begins his systematic theology with beauty. He says, beauty is the word that shall be our first. Beauty is the last thing which the thinking intellect dares to approach since only it dances as an uncondemned splendour around the double constellation of the true and the good and their inseparable relation to one another. Beauty is the disinterested one, without which the ancient world refused to understand itself, a word which both imperceptibly and yet unmistakably has bid farewell to our new world, a world of interests, leaving it to its own avarice and sadness. Um, but, as the Dominican, another Dominican, I'm trying my best here, uh, Father Jonah, uh, as the Dominica, Dominican Father Aidan Nichols, who has arguably done the most to translate and helpfully condense, I mean, these German writers that just go on and on and on, they just haven't learnt concision, but Father Aidan Nichols does it for us because he condenses um, the immense mammoth 15-volume trilogy for English readers. As he notes at the beginning of his own recent book, Balthasar for Thomists in 2019, 
Thomists have not always welcomed the entry of Balthasarians into a place of some in Catholic theology. Now, leaving to one side the specific differences over dogmatic questions of systematic theology, should we turn today to von Balthasar's overarching approach, an approach which places first the beauty of the Christian faith as an appropriate and perhaps even the best way into Thomism as well as a whole? Should the first UK Thomistic Institute retreat start not with Aquinas' work, but rather with art, aesthetics, with the way of beauty. Father Aidan Nichols appears to think so, arguing persuasively that Thomists today need von Balthasar, that Balthasarians and Thomists should be allies rather than, as sometimes been the case, presented as antagonistic rivals. In this course, in this course, Sorry, you haven't got a course from me. That'd be terrible. In this course, I promise, it's only an hour, but we did start late. So, in this course, I'm still in kind of... Oh dear. In this talk, then. It's late. It's been a long day. Uh, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep going. Um, in this talk, I'm going to suggest another resource for Thomas and Catholics and Christians in thinking about the role of beauty in Christian theology. Dante and specifically today, Dante's Beatrice, or Beatrice. Now, von Balthasar himself turns to Dante as his first example of a lay style of theology, and Dante exemplifies von Balthasar his own understanding of the role of beauty. But there are some key and interesting differences of emphasis between von Balthasar's approach and that of Dante, and these open up interesting questions about the nature and role of beauty in the arts and the Christian life. It may also be, as I shall suggest, that a Thomistic approach to beauty should draw as much and perhaps more on Dante's Beatrice than on von Balthasar. Um, so, this evening I'm not going to talk in detail about von Balthasar's fact, I'm not going to talk about von Balthasar's approach to beauty, I'll touch about it to, on, on it tomorrow, and theological aesthetics or von Balthasar's reading of Dante, otherwise it really would take the whole evening. Instead, I'm going to focus just on a reappraisal of Dante's Beatrice, as properly understood, embodying the beauty, goodness, and truth of the Christian faith. I'm going to introduce, open up, the symbolic and properly theological, and as we'll see, strongly Thomas dimension of Dante's poem. This is not to downplay the extraordinary realism and verisimilitude of the poem, uh, the Divine Comedy can and is commonly appreciated at its surface level, and there's nothing wrong with that. But this poem also invites us to pierce the veil of the fiction and plumb the truths that lie beneath it. Um, and I was thinking, you know, as, as we were on the, um, the bus today and we arrived at Stonyhouse, I was quite pleased in the end we went down the main drive. The bus driver got lost, he missed the side entrance, he went down the main drive. But if you imagine you go down that, that main drive, you see this amazing kind of bright, heady building of, of Stonyhurst. But you could imagine if you entered the main hall instead of coming to the Christian Heritage Centre, as you enter the main hall, there might be a huge extravagant lion skin on the floor. Okay. Now, an extravagant lion skin, I don't know why I was thinking about this, but I was just thinking about this. Um, you know, it's kind of an amazing thing. It's a beautiful thing. Right? But imagine you went into that hall and there was a real lion. Like, that would be something more. It would be roaring. Now, that, I would say to you, is the difference. This is for you. 
between reading the poem at the surface level, which we love, it's the lines, it's exotic, there's lots there, and the theology that's opened up by the symbolic and the allegorical. Okay. As Dante may be new to some of you, who has never read, oh no, who's read Dante? Has anyone read Dante? Yeah, a few. Okay, don't like you. Who hasn't read Dante? Yes! Great, super, good. So there's some of you as well. Um, I do like you've read Dante, that's wonderful. I know you had to read Dante at school, um, and it's been for, you've been forced with Dante, just like others used to be forced fed with Aquinas. It seems to turn Italians off because they've been forced fed with it. Anyway, there we go. We come to it as something novel and exciting. Um, uh, here, anyway, as Dante may be new to some of you, I shall start by giving a very brief overview of Dante's Divine Comedy, and then going to discuss Dante's Beatrice as his representation of the beauty of the Christian faith. Then I'm going to show how the beauty of Beatrice, the beauty of God's self-revelation, attracts the soul also to the goodness and truth of God. And then I'm going to give a couple of examples in the opening counters of Paradiso of this attraction and satisfaction stage by stage of the beauty and truth of the Christian faith. Okay. Let's just see how we're going to write. Okay, fine. 13 minutes. So, intro to divine, the Divine Comedy. Like a great Romanesque or Gothic cathedral or a great fresco cycle that's by Giotto and Irina Chapel, Dante's Divine Comedy, kind of around the same time as the great Gothic cathedrals, um, written in the early 14th century, is a magisterial representation in literature of the Christian faith. It is composed of three great songs or canticles, the poem's primary purpose being the glory of God. The third canticle, the Paradiso, opening with the words La gloria di colui che tutto muove. The glory of him who moves all things. The whole poem, moreover, is stamped formally with the great mystery of the Christian faith. That God is one in three persons from the macro level, one poem in three parts, to the micro level. The poem's basic unit is a three-line tetzina, one in three. The poem tells the story of a journey, a journey through the three realms of the Christian afterlife, the realm of hell, of 34 cantos, of hell, of purgatory, 33 cantos of purgatorio, and of heaven, 33 cantos of paradiso. And, you know, for those who haven't read Dante, T.S. Eliot said, you can get more out of one episode of one canto of Dante's Divine Comedy than from a whole Shakespeare play. So you've got more than 100 Shakespeare plays. In Dante. If you haven't read Dante, it's worth getting there. Okay. In terms of the cosmology, Dante imagines that after a great cosmos, I can't believe that Beppe, my friend, is on his phone during my talk, texting away at his friends. It's so rude. Look, can you see anyone else playing with their mobile phones? Yeah? Yeah, it's alien now. Okay, something important. Yeah, okay. Family, family, it's got a reason. That was really unfair of me. Because he's a friend of mine, I'm allowed to just attack him. This whole talk is basically written against what he's going to say tomorrow on Tolkien. Because he's going to say, <laughs> Tolkien, Tolkien hates allegory. You know, when you move one hand, you go to realism. So this is just a wind-up for him. Anyway, but also, I mean, he does know Dante backwards much better than me, so he should be on the phone. Please, be on your phone. I'm just winding you know, <laughs> so. um, In terms of its cosmology, Dante imagines that after a great cosmic battle in heaven, Lucifer, the brightest of the angels, a demonstration, yeah, uh, fell from heaven, right, fell from heaven down towards the earth. The earth, because it's good, recoiled in horror, creating the spiralling funnel of hell. 
with Satan stuck ludicrously at its centre. Because God, out of every evil, brings about some good. This displaced earth created in the southern hemisphere the mountain of purgatory, the way back to God already prepared for man who would, tempted by Satan, be drawn into sin. And finally, Dante depicts the extraordinary and brilliant diversity of the saints' holiness and gifts, the beauty of the saints' lives as a witness to the Christian faith through the ten heavens, even though, as he emphasises, all the saints, in fact, reside in the Imperium, beyond space and time itself. Dante's cosmology, Dante's eschatology, his extraordinary imaginative vision of the afterlife is secondary to his primary purpose, which is ethical. Dante indeed categorises his poem as a work of ethics. And in his time, this was a typical category for much literature. You could hardly say that today. In other words, that literature should draw readers away from vice and teach virtue. The Divine Comedy is the telling of the great journey of desire from sin and ignorance to holiness and virtue. In a letter to his patron, Dante wrote that the purpose of his poem is to lead people in this life from the state of misery, the state of sin, and direct them to the beatitude of heaven. The poem tells us, in allegorical and symbolic form, Dante's own confessional journey of desire from sinner to saint. But Dante is also an everyman. His journey is our journey. The opening line of the poem is, in the middle of the journey of our life, nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, not just of my life. And on this journey, we, like him, are never alone. Like him, we also find that just waiting for us are the inestimable resources of Catholic theology, philosophy and culture on which to draw. In a typological sense, these um, resources are mapped by the two main guides of Dante's journey, Virgil and Beatrice. So, three canticles in one great poem, three realms in one afterlife. There are also then three main characters, three principal protagonists in the one epic journey. Dante himself as a character in the poem, Virgil and Beatrice. And following again the theological principle, which is stamped on the whole poem, beautiful, of one in threeness, each character has three main offices corresponding to the three great divisions of human activity as categorised by Aquinas following Aristotle, namely speculative knowledge, the ratio speculabilium, which concerns the truth, morality, the ratio agibilium, which concerns the good, and art, the ratio factibilium, which concerns the beautiful. Dante is a student whose passionate intellect, whose enamoured mind, desires knowledge, the truth. Dante is a sinner whose heart, or whose will, seeks virtue, the good. And Dante is a poet, he's a maker, a creator of beautiful fictions. Virgil is Dante's teacher in philosophy. He's Dante's instructor in the moral life, and he's his guide in poetry. While Virgil is a type for the natural order, Beatrice is a type for the Christian supernatural order. In the speculative field of knowledge, she is faith and the light of glory. In the practical field of morals, she's grace and the light of glory. And in the realm of mating, making, mating, 
In the realm of making, uh, she is the very beauty of Christian revelation. Oh dear, you should never read your talk while on the train. This is what happens. I don't know whether you can see this, but I basically am scrubbing out everything I've written, saying that's rubbish. And then I'm trying to write another talk in the margins. So I apologise if I slightly struggle. Um, don't read your own work. It's like, you know, if you write anything, you publish it, you read it. Oh, it's awful, awful. So I've, I seem to have crossed out absolutely everything in this page. I'm trying to find something to read. Um, okay. It is thus that when Dante, at the height of his worldly success, as one of the six priors of Florence and a celebrated poet, scholar and statesman, recognises and represents himself as nonetheless morally and spiritually lost in a dark wood. And he opens himself up to divine intervention, calling out the first word of the great penitential psalm, Miserere me, have mercy on me. Beatrice, grace sends Virgil, the natural order, reason, to show Dante the baseness of human vices in hell. And then Virgil accompanies Dante up the mountain of purgatory, a vision of the Christian pathway, of ever greater friendship with God and neighbour, in love, through virtue, through combating vice. And finally, Virgil leaves Dante with Beatrice herself to see the extraordinary beauty and holiness of life that such a journey of desire makes possible and is its eternal reward. So, we've given an overview of the poem's tripartite structure and cosmology, of the three journeys through hell, purgatory and paradise in the one journey, of its three main protagonists, Dante, Virgil and Beatrice, and their threefold offices, in knowledge, the sphere of truth, in ethics, the sphere of the good, and in art, the sphere of beauty. Now, let me focus a little bit more on Beatrice herself and what it means to say that she represents the beauty of the Christian faith. In the 19th century in particular, paintings proliferated of Dante as a romantic lover and Beatrice as his young beloved. Um, and you think in the kind of English culture of the pre-Raphaelites. Um, since Boccaccio's life of Dante, she was identified with the daughter of a Florentine banker, Bici Portinari, the Bici Portinari of history. Boccaccio's novella is the only, and I would say extremely unreliable source, historical source, for the identification with Bici Portinari. Um, there's no other evidence. Um, Dante at no point identifies Beatrice with a historical woman, let alone with a Florentine woman, let alone with a Florentine woman called Beatrice Portinari even though in every edition of the poem, whether it's Italian or English today, it'll say, Dante saw Beatrice Portinari for the first time in his nine brother. No evidence for it. Thus Pietro, Dante's son, in his commentary, interprets her purely allegorically in the, in the comedy. And this purely allegorical interpretation of Beatrice can be traced through the commentary, 700 years of commentary, up to around the Second World War. Since then, the scholarly consensus has been that Beatrice is this historical woman, Bici Portinari, who nonetheless has a symbolic role. And you know, she's sometimes seen as revelation, faith, faith, grace, theology. Now, I'm currently um, uh, 
writing a, a sort of article about the last stand, as it were, of the purely symbolic interpretation of Beatrice by the Dominican, Dominican, uh, the Dominican Thomist uh, Pierre Mandin. Um, and, but whether or not, uh, in relation to this question of Beatrice, um, you, know, you agree that she's purely symbolic or that she's historic and that she has this um, symbolic um, valency, I do think that for us, in a kind of Thomistic Institute context, um, this Dominican Pierre Mandinet opens up with his deep knowledge of scholastic thought and of, of Thomism in particular. He opens up well the symbolic dimension of Beatrice as the beauty, truth, and goodness of revelation. Um, so I'm struggling because I'm having to kind of move from one bit of text at the margins to another. Um, and now I've got diagrams, I have no idea where I've got to. Um, I also realise I'm saying something a little bit controversial, I'm a little bit worried. I'm worried that I've been saying this just to wind up Beppe and then... Anyway, that's where we are, where we've got to now. Um, okay, yeah, so I've said something about Beatrice. The key point is that um, uh, what I'm going to be doing now is talking about Dante's Beatrice as the beauty of the Christian faith, and just to register the fact that we can talk about her as the, um, as the beauty of the Christian faith, um, uh, while also holding to the consensus that she's a historical work. So, but I also just want to suggest, to open up that exciting thought, heard first here tonight, that beautiful Dinari might just be the invention of um, uh, Boccaccio. And that's not just me. There's this long tradition, but we've kind of lost it. We've kind of lost it. Okay, right, I'll carry on. So now, Dante's Beatrice as the beauty of the Christian faith. I've lost some time there, mumbling. 26 minutes. Right. So, as a poet, Dante's first function is to manifest beauty, to create beautiful lives, Berlin and Sonia, beautiful fictions, an art Dante preeminently learned from Virgil. So the same applies to Beatrice. She reveals the highest beauty, the divine beauty in Christian revelation. In this way, we may see in Dante's 14th century poem precisely what von Balthasar would emphasize in the 20th century about Christian revelation, namely that it is beautiful in its form. As the Dominican Mandane puts it, Christian revelation may be considered to be the masterpiece of the divine art. Just as a poem is due to the ingenuity of man and is not a spontaneous product of nature, Revelation is likewise God's work of art, because in, it, it's in itself it is not required by the nature of things. For Mandanet, in presenting Beatrice in this way, Dante is simply drawing out the implication of Aquinas' thought on the beauty of the Incarnation. As Aquinas writes, the Incarnation of the Word is the miracle of miracles, because it is greater than all other miracles, and all other miracles are ordered to this miracle. In the Summa Contra Gentiles, Aquinas similarly remarks that the mystery of the Incarnation, more than any other of God's acts, most exceeds the grasp of reason. One could not conceive, indeed, of anything more miraculous than that the true God, the Son of God, would become a true man. In his early work, the Vita Nova, Dante likewise refers to Beatrice as a thing come from heaven to earth to demonstrate a miracle, 
In other words, she's supernatural, beyond the power of nature. And in the Divine Comedy, Dante writes of Beatrice that not between the last night and the first day of the world has there been or will there be so high and so magnificent a going forth. As Mandalay underlines, what Dante writes of Beatrice, that only God may fully enjoy her beauty because only he fully knows it, would only be applicable to the incarnate word. As Wombardsa will take Christ incarnate as the model for his theological aesthetics, so Dante already, in this way, presents Beatrice as the beauty of the incarnate word. Having ascended to the eighth sphere of the fixed stars on his journey up the heavenly spheres of paradise, Dante looks back at the seven planetary spheres and sees this earth, us, this globe, to be such as to make him smile at its base appearance. Just before ascending to the ninth sphere, the prima mobile, in a contemptuous mundi, drawing again also on the classical precedent of Cicero Somnium Scipionis, Dante again looks back down on the earth, and through mythological, geographical references to Ulysses' mad crossing and Jupiter's abduction of Europe, he identifies the object of his sight on earth as the ocean to the southwest of Spain and the Mediterranean. I don't know why we needed that detail, um, really, in this talk, so I apologize for that, but there we go. Um, now you know. From this celestial perspective, he sees the world as this little threshing floor, and as nothing compared to the beauty of God, to which he then again turns his eyes. My enamored mind, or as Dorothy says, but it's passionate intellect. I love that. I should have passionate intellect that ever courts my lady, Beatrice, more than ever burned to turn my eyes back to her. And if nature or art have ever made bait in human flesh or in paintings to capture the eyes and so gain the mind, all gathered here would see nothing next to the divine beauty that shone on me when I turned to her smiling eyes. So here, Dante both registers the capacity of the natural world and human art to attract us by their beauty. But he also underlines that this natural and artistic beauty is even as nothing compared to the divine beauty of God. Beatrice's beauty that is totally surpasses that of all the beauties which nature and art can produce and gather together. Turning his eyes to Beatrice, Dante makes a striking assertion. If everything he's written of Beatrice in the 96 countries of the Commedia thus far, and arguably in the whole course of his literary career, including the Vita Nova, were concentrated in just one louder, one hymn of praise, it would be insufficient to fulfill what is required now, at this point of his theme, by the vision of Beatrice's beauty. As Dante's son Pietro comments, Dante had wonderful sons. Right? Two of them wrote commentaries on his poem, and Pietro wrote three commentaries, huge commentaries on Latin in his poem. Piety of sons. I hope my sons are going to like that. Right. Um, but then, I'm not going to write anything worth commenting on. But anyway, yeah, I hope they're pious. Pious, pious. That'd be good. As Dante's son Pietro comments, the beauty of Beatrice is anachronically the doctrine of sacred theology. As Dante treats of higher and more perfect things in paradise. Dante thus becomes ever, Dante, Beatrice thus becomes ever more beautiful. However, in seeking to describe the imperium, the realm of the beatitude of God, the blessed souls, and the angels, 
Beatrice reaches beauties beyond measure, and Dante reaches his ultimate limit. Only God may enjoy Beatrice's beauty fully, for only God fully understands and comprehends himself. No blessed intellect understands God perfectly, nor in consequence sacred theology which speaks of God. As Mandane concludes, everything we are told about Beatrice in the Vithanov and the Commedia relates to the beauty of Christian revelation, which is her primary function. She expresses and reveals to humanity the beauty of God's masterpiece. Right, that was the beauty of Christian revelation as Beatrice. 33 minutes. Okay, not too bad. So, the unity of beauty, goodness, and truth. Beatrice is then the beauty of the Christian supernatural order, but she is also its goodness, or she embodies its goodness and truth. She poetically embodies, that is, the perfect union of the beauty, goodness, and truth of the Christian faith. But perhaps it takes a Thomist, like this Thomist I love, Pierre Mandinet, um, French Thomist of the early 20th century, who wrote this wonderful book on uh, Dante and theology, which was ridiculed by everyone, wasn't translated into particularly by Etienne Jensen, the medievalist of Etienne Jensen, ridicules this book. And then it's ridiculed, no one's read it, we're bringing it back to life. Now we're translating it into English. Everyone can enjoy Pierre Mandel, wonderful Thomas, wonderful historian, much maligned. But it perhaps takes a Thomas and a Thomas like dear father Pierre Mandelay to appreciate this fully. Um, okay. So, goodness, truth. Beatrice is also grace, by whose action the human soul is raised up to the supernatural order and may, through its virtual, virtuous actions, merit eternal life. In the Summa, as you all know, as, as Budding Thomas, Aquinas distinguishes, he likes distinguishing, doesn't he, Aquinas? He likes distinguishing. Aquinas distinguishes five effects of grace in us. The first, to heal the soul, gratia sanans, that um, Father Michael Lohan was talking about, gratia sanus. The second, to desire the good. The third, to carry into effect the good. The effect. That sometimes has you know, an effect, you know, quite sometimes, sometimes that effect on those that they start yawning. I don't know what it is, you know. I don't know what it is. So it's all this distinguishing, it just brings out the yawns in Aquinas distinguishes five effects of grace in us. The first is to heal the soul. The second, to desire the good. The third, to carry into effect the good proposed. The fourth, to persevere in good. The fifth, to reach glory. Grazia, elevans. Inasmuch as grace carries, causes the first effect, healing the soul, it may be referred to as prevalent with regard to the second effect, instilling a desire for the good, which is then a subsequent grace. Thus, at the beginning of Dante's poem, Beatrice acts first as prevenient grace. In so far as she sends word of the natural order to Dante who's lost in sin to demonstrate to him the baseness of human vice in hell. She says, I am Beatrice who calls you to go. And even at the very end of the poem, it is still Beatrice who this time enlisting St. Bernard. We have a Bernard here on this course. Wonderful. Two Bernards. <laughs> Wonderful. Great name. Great name. St. Bernard. St. Bernard, the final guide. There's an extra guide at the end of each chapter because you have Matilda in, in Bernard's well. But St. Bernard, to draw Dante to his final vision, to bring your desire to its last fulfillment, Beatrice has sent me, St. Bernard, from my place. As Mandanet comments, Dante's journey through hell and purgatory is a continuation of the effects of grace which produce remorse and contrition in him, finally resulting in a remission of sins. As grace is given to the church militant on earth in beer, 
while its consummation and fulfillment, the light of glory, is bestowed on the church triumphant in heaven, so in Dante's vision of paradise, Beatrice is no longer called grace, but rather the light of glory, lumen gloria. <coughs> Aquinas compares the grace of Christ, which we have in the present life, to the seed of a tree, which contains already within it the virtue of power of the whole tree. The grace of glory, then, is the tree itself, the final consummation and fruition of the first effects of grace in this life. The relationship in the poem, then, between Dante character and Beatrice figures the progressive workings of grace on the human soul, leading ultimately to its final beatitude. In the moral order, then, Beatrice is both grace and the light of glory, grace's fulfilment in heaven. So we've seen Beatrice as first the beauty of the Christian faith that attracts, that draws Dante from sin. We've seen Beatrice as the goodness of the Christian faith, the grace which heals sin and which raises man up, that through his virtuous actions he may merit eternal life. But in the speculative order, axios speculabilium, Beatrice is also the truth of the Christian faith. Dante starts his journey in a dark wood, in a selva schooner, in the darkness of ignorance and the wood of sin. And his journey is both a healing and orientation of the will to the good, God, and a healing and orientation of the intellect to the true, God. In the speculative order, Beatrice represents faith for man in via, in earth or in purgatory, and the light of glory for man in patria, in heaven. Thus, as Virgil articulates, he represents the light of reason, whereas Beatrice represents the light of faith. He says, as much as reason sees here, I can tell you. Beyond that, you must wait for Beatrice, for it is a matter of faith. Beatrice um, is the supernatural order, sacred scripture, the truths of faith. It is thus that, as Mandalay underlines, Beatrice, in this wonderful pageant, of the earthly paradise at the height of purgatory is borne by a chariot symbolizing um, scripture. And although frequently identified with theology, so a lot of commentaries will say, well, the symbolic meaning of Beatrice, the historical one is this particular woman, beautiful from but the symbolic one is theology. And Mandela, I think, is just so right. I think it's, it's a Thomist. She can't symbolize theology. Right? It's inaccurate to say that Beatrice even symbolized theology. Because what does theology do? Theology brings together the truths of faith, and that's what's symbolized by Beatrice, and the truths of reason in an auxiliary role symbolized by Virgil. So you can't say Beatrice symbolized theology, because theology actually brings those two orders, those two true truths together. Although Beatrice symbolizes faith outside paradise, in paradise itself, then, she symbolizes the light of glory. And in this role, she symbolizes the direct vision of truth, God, and all things in relation to him. In De Veritate on Truth, Aquinas writes, Although our intellect has been made to see God, it cannot see God by its own natural power, but through the light of glory infused into it. Therefore, even if every veil were taken away as of guilt or of creaturehood, the human intellect would still not see God in his essence, unless illuminated by the light of glory. For this very lack of the light of glory will be an obstacle to seeing God. As beatitude 
this is why we need grazie elevans. So why? Oh, I won't go into that. The, as beatitude, the vision of the divine essence, is beyond the natural power of the human intellect, the intellect must be raised by the light of glory to see God, the first truth, and all things in him. The will can then rest in the good, grasped by our power to know and delight in it, in an act of love or fruitfulness which perfects beatitude. And like many of the early commentators, Latin commentators, Mandalay glosses the very name Beatrice. Why does Dante call Beatrice Beatrice? Well, it's she who beatifies, the power which beatifies, who makes it possible for Dante to see God to reach beatitude. Dante's Virgil refers to Beatrice indeed as the light between the truth God and the human intellect. Che lume fia tra il vero e l'intelletto. She is then the light of God by which man in heaven sees God. In heaven, Dante depicts the increasing vision of God through Beatrice's action as she moves from one heavenly sphere to the next. As Aquinas states, hence the intellect which has more of the light of glory will see God the more perfectly and he will have fuller participation of the light of glory who has more charity. Because where there is greater charity, there is the more desire. And desire, in a certain degree, makes the one desiring apt and prepared to receive the object desired. Hence, he who possesses the more charity will see God the more perfectly and will be the more beatified. In the ascending spheres of Dante's Paradiso, as Mandone notes, Dante depicts the action of the light of glory on the intellect gradually through Beatrice's gaze, which pours out the vision of the deity into Dante's eyes. Just as for Aquinas, the more the intellect participates in the light of glory, the more perfectly it sees God, so Beatrice's beauty increases. We see it, Dante describes it with more and more fine language as Dante ascends the heavenly spheres. For my beauty, which burns brighter as you have seen, the higher we ascend the stairway of the eternal palace. Let's see where we've got to, right. 43 minutes. I was, I was given like. 50 minutes, but so we're okay. We're okay. I'll keep going. I'll stop. I promise I'll stop before. Uh, well, I'll stop before the end. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> right, last section. Okay, last section. Beatrice's eyes and smile, the beauty of the demonstrations and persuasions of theology. So let me now just give a few examples of Dante's representation of the beauty of Christian faith and of the increase through study in knowledge or vision of God in the Paradiso. Beatrice is the main speaker in Dante's Paradiso, but even when a saint speaks, it is always mediante Beatrice. It is through Beatrice. That is, it's true to say that all the speeches in Dante's Paradiso ultimately come from or through Beatrice, from or through Christian revelation. Thus, for example, the speech of St. Thomas Aquinas, to whom Dante gives the most lines after Beatrice in the Paradiso. In fact, he gives the most lines to St. Thomas Aquinas after only the three main protagonists. Dante, Virgin, Beatrice. Good, yeah? So, so you know, Thomas should go to Dante. I've just written about why Dante scholars need Thomas, and Thomas would do well to draw on Dante. Uh, uh, okay, the speech of St. Thomas Aquinas is said to be of perfect likeness to that of Beatrice as the circumference of a circle corresponds perfectly to its centre. According to the poet's, the poet's allegory, Beatrice pours out this vision 
through her eyes and her smile, her smile actually in her eyes. It's beautiful detail. You know, when, when someone smiles, often the most beautiful thing about someone's smile is it's their eyes. You, know, you see them light up and they smile. It's beautiful. So actually, Beatrice's smile, we think it's on her lips, but actually it's always on her eyes. Anyway, yeah, through her eyes and her smile. He's, when he's talking about it through those two dimensions, he, he's talking about the demonstrations and persuasions of theology. The key point is that Christian revelation is beautiful. It's demonstrations and persuasions, like in his allegory, the gaze and smile of a beautiful lady. When seen, when understood, give delight. As in Aquinas' pithy formulation, pulcrum est ut visum placet. The beautiful is which gives pleasure to the sight. And obviously that's also when seen, when heard, when understood, gives delight. Now the Paradiso is the least read and even least studied by scholars of Dante's Three Canticles, and this may well be because of a general antipathy, at least in modern literary scholarship, to theology. Moreover, Dante also appears to recognise that not all his readers will want or will be able, will have the intellectual capacity or leisure, like we have in these three days, leisure, to chart this final stage of his journey, and then it may well be better and safer for them to return to shore, secure in their salvation rather than plumb the depths of Christian wisdom and potentially fail to understand and get lost in confusion and doubt. He begins the second canto in Dorothy Says' translation, Oh, you that follow in little cockle, cockle shells, lovely, I did cockle shells like the early Picholetta like, in little in a little boat. Oh, you who follow in these little boats, for the song's sake, my ship, Dante's ship, that sails before, carving her course and singing as she sails, turn back and seek the safety of the shore. Tempt not the deep, the depths of Christian theology. Lest losing unawares me and yourselves, you come to port no more. At the same time, he invites budding theologians to follow him. In uh, Dante's more literal translation, you are the few who stretched out your necks early on the bread of angels, which one lives on here though never sated by it. You can well set your course over the salt deep, staying within my wake before the water returns never again. Dante uses this beautiful image of newly hatched birds stretching out their necks for food to apply to theologians who cannot attain knowledge of God on earth except insofar as they humbly receive it from above. And they must constantly reach out beyond themselves to the gift of a food, of a revelation which comes from heaven, the panis angelorum, the bread of angels. This is revealed truth of which Beatrice is the personification, the mother bird who feeds her chicks. The first two souls with whom Dante speaks, Mediante Beatrice, are two nuns, two poor clairs, the, 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 the sisters, the Franciscan sisters, who've been abducted from their cloisters and enforced into politically strategic marriages, Picarda and Costanza. They were both forcibly removed, in other words, from a life devoted entirely to God in a mystical marriage with Christ. In seeing these two souls of, in the lowest of the heavenly spheres, symbolically, with the lowest grade of beatitude, Dante Earl asks his first theological question. How are degrees of beatitude compatible with the perfection of paradise? In other words, with all souls receiving the beatitude vision. How can you have degrees of beatitude? He asks, tell me, you souls who are happy here, do you not desire a higher place? 
so as to see more and to share more love. And smiling a little, Picard explains that were she to desire more, her will would be discordant with God's will. To be in God's will is, she says, the peace of paradise. And his will is our peace. He is that sea to which all move that his will creates or nature makes. Now, choosing this example, um, I, I actually did it because of Consuelo, because um, I gave a talk in a Catholic chapel in St Andrews about a month ago, um, and she asked a very difficult question at the end. She said, what's your favourite line in Dante's life? My favourite line, for goodness sake. Anyway, so I started rambling on and, and flummoxing or whatever, not coming up with a, a, a line. And then, she, then afterwards, she, she came up and she said, la sua bondade nostra pace. Well, yeah, why didn't you just tell me that? That's obviously the best line in the Divine Comedy. And in your will is our peace. Just a beautiful line. So anyway, then I've, I've tried to remedy that today, Consuelo. Um, from her reply, Dante understands that everywhere in heaven is paradise, even though the grace of God, the highest good, does not reign there in equal measure. It's like one of those beautiful images, theological images. Now, this is a persuasion of theology. So much of theology. And there's a wonderful book by a Dominican, on the Summa Theologiae, as, 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 as beauty in, 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 in Aquinas. And he says, you always find in Aquinas the term convenienza. There are so many arguments from the appropriateness. Or when you get to the incarnation, it's not necessitati, because you have to have faith to believe in these things. It's not like at the beginning. So in a sense, an argument ex convenienza is an argument from beauty. It's so appropriate, so ordered, it makes no sense. It's so beautiful, it's so beautiful. And that's what so much of theology is about, right? It's, you, and, and so this is, and then you get these beautiful images in theology, like how can you have degrees of beatitude? Well, we're like vases, which God always fills. So therefore we have the beatific vision. But some saints have an openness, a depth, and so the vase gets bigger, which allows the rain to get in. So they're full up, but they can still <laughs> increase in beatitude. Yeah? Well, it's a persuasion, something beautiful about theology. Dante's hunger for this truth satisfied by a morsel of the bread of angels. Um, a further hunger remains in a beautiful simile. Dante is described as caught between two desires for knowledge, two questions he equally desires answered. He's like a man caught between two foods equally distant, equally attractive, and who would thus, unable to choose, die of hunger before bringing either to his teeth. It's a logical puzzle. Beatrice intuits Dante's two theological questions, answering first as having the more venom. Dante's inference from his surroundings on the heaven of the moon, that the souls return on death to the stars as Plato taught. Beatrice's explanation here concerns theological hermeneutics, the metaphorical language of the poem, the metaphorical language of sacred scripture, and potentially of Plato's philosophical mythological writing itself. She says, they, this group of saints, did here in the sphere of the moon show themselves, but not because this sphere have been allotted them as theirs. They signify celestial power least raised. To speak in this way fits the human mind, for you only grasp through things you've sensed what mind will then present as fit for thought. For this same reason, scripture condescends to your capacities and says that God has hands and feet, though meaning otherwise. So Holy Church would also represent Michael and Gabriel with human face, the other two who helped heal Tobit's sight. So even Plato's Timaeus 
may be interpreted as true if interpreted metaphorically as perhaps he himself intended. Dante's second question is about the justice of the nun's lowest degree of beatitude, which seems unjust. Parer injusta la nostra giustizia. If their wills remained inviolate, in other words, if they continued to desire to remain in their cloister, why does the violence of their abductors lessen their merit in heaven? In her reply, Beatrice draws a scholastic distinction between an absolute will and a conditioned will. Although Costanza and Picarda had truly desired always to remain in the cloister, their wills ultimately assented, bending to the violence inflicted upon them, and in doing so, they sec seconded its force. If their wills had remained firm, they would have tried to return to the cloister, and even, like the Christian martyrs, accepted death in trying to do so. Their absolute will did not consent then to the violence, but their conditional will to avoid a greater harm or from fear of the consequences assented to it. And for this reason, their merit is less. In response to these explanations, which I've curtly summarized, and you can read in full, Cantus 3 and 4 of the Paradis, and I'm sure that Stefan's wonderful curated library has a copy or more of Dante's Divine Comedy, and if it doesn't, then, well, it will come. Um, uh, in response to these um, explanations, Dante gives an encomium to Beatrice, which is an encomium to the beauty, truth, and goodness of Christian revelation. Underlining the beauty of the truth, the desire we have for it, and the joy we experience in coming stage by stage to know it more deeply. And I read again from Sayer's translation. It's not literal, but you know, she tries to do the um, tetzalina, sometimes with terrible, but sometimes with, with, with nice effects. Uh, thus did it ripple forth, the sacred stream sprung from the fount whence every truth doth flow. Thus to my two desires, my two questions, sing requiem. O loved, said I, speaking of Beatrice, of the first lover, O most heavenly lady, by whose words I live, more and yet more, bathed in their quickening glow. My love's whole store is too diminutive, this is one of the bad rhymes, too poor in thanks to give back grace for grace. May he that sees and have the power so give. That nothing save the light of truth allays our intellect's disquiet, I now see plain. God's truth, which holds all truth within its rays. Intellect, like a wild thing in its den, when it has run and reached it, there can rest, as reach it must, else all desire were vain. Hence, at the foot of truth, the undying quest springs like a shoot, and doubt is still the lure that speeds us towards the height from crest to crest. This thought invites and makes me more secure. To ask you, lady, Beatrice, with all reference to you, about a further truth I find obscure. And to find out what all those further truths you just carry on reading the Paradiso. So, to conclude, at the beginning of this talk, I asked about the way of beauty. I asked whether the way of beauty is an appropriate approach also for Thomas. Dante, I think, gives us a vision of the quest for truth, which is also a quest for beauty and for goodness. And whether or not it is accurate to call him a Thomist, he certainly gives to St. Thomas the greatest glory in the heaven of Christian wisdom. And Dante certainly studied a number of Aquinas' works very attentively, including the Summa Confugentibus. But in either case, I think Dante is so helpful for a Thomist, or for any seeker of truth, because he shows that this is a journey of beauty, of desire, of 
joy. When we arrive at the heaven of wisdom, Dante characterises St. Dominic as an amorous lover of the Christian faith, the holy athlete, benign to his own, but harsh to his enemies. The theologian, or any student of Christian revelation, is similarly called to be a lover, even a student from studere, desire, a lover of faith. With no limit on the object of his or her desire, because this object is God and all things in relation to God. Dante shows and celebrates how truth, and especially God's self-revelation, is beautiful, how it attracts us, drawing our desire. In his own poem, he invites us to accompany him on the way of beauty, the via pulcritudinus, on a journey to the beauty, goodness, and truth of God. Despite the many obstacles to 21st century English readers of Dante, I hope you may be inspired and encouraged to undertake your own journey with Dante in the years ahead and accompanied by him to grow in truth and holiness.